once more we are reminded of the events of Jesus' birth, of angels and wise men, of shepherds, of no room in the inn, and of the Virgin Mary, and of Jesus, our Emmanuel. But I have two puzzles for you today. They're not the puzzles of every day, they're not the puzzles that we'll be doing in our Christmas gatherings over the next uh, week or so, when I do hope that you'll be able to come and invite friends, and even if you can't come, make sure that you invite them. We've given you this so that even if you can't be here, you'll send people along to hear on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day when we'll be explaining the Gospel of the Lord Jesus, or you'll be watching at 6pm on Christmas Eve on the ABC when uh, our Christmas Eve show, uh, our Christmas Eve gathering will be uh, televised across the nation and hope that you and your family will be one of the million who will be watching. But I have two puzzles that are for Cathedral Bible study. One, why was it important for Mary to be a virgin? And two, why was Jesus called Emmanuel? Now, before you jump in with answers, let me remind you that nowhere else in the Bible, other than the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel, is the virginity of Mary ever mentioned. And no conclusion, no discussion of it ever happens anywhere else in the rest of the Scriptures. It's here in Matthew 1, it's here in Luke 1, and it's just mentioned as a fact. Secondly, nowhere else is Jesus ever called Emmanuel. We're told here in chapter 1 that they shall call his name Emmanuel, but he's never called Emmanuel. He's always called Jesus. So what is this Emmanuel? There are the two questions. See, why was it important for Mary to be a virgin and why was Jesus called Emmanuel? Now sure, he was God's son and he was God with us because he was God the son become man. And so he was indeed Emmanuel, and he is born of a virgin, not of a human father, but of the heavenly father, and he was God with us. But all those kinds of things are never actually stated in the New Testament. But rather, the New Testament gives us a completely different reason that we may expect, and it's there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The reason why the virgin birth and the name Emmanuel was to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah 7 in particular. But what's Isaiah 7 about? And how does Jesus' birth fulfill Isaiah 7. Well, Isaiah 7 is about King Ahaz, and immediately you realise we've jumped right out of where most people talk about Christmas, because it doesn't matter what other Christmas ceremony you've been to, King Ahaz won't have featured in it. But Isaiah 7 is about King Ahaz. He was the king of Judah in the period in Jerusalem, in the period 730 BC to 715 BC, roughly. That is, the 8th century before Christ. Now, there were two local nations wanted Judah to join them in a revolt. Rezin was the king of Aram. I'm going to keep calling it Aram today. It's what we call Syria. But when you talk about Syria, people get Syria and Assyria confused. So I'll use its old name, Aram. 
in Damascus, and Pekah was the king of Israel, that is the ten northern tribes that had broken away from Judah, centred around Samaria. And these two kings wanted Judah and Judah's king, King Ahaz, to join them in a revolt against Assyria. Now, Assyria was the world empire at the time with its capital in the city of Nineveh. So when you're living just in Palestine, you think that Aram and and Israel are big and powerful nations. But when you actually stand back, you see that Assyria controlled the whole Middle East, right through to Egypt, under its great king Tiglath-Pileser. It was in the ascendancy over the whole of that territory, and everybody was afraid, with good reason, of the Assyrians. Ahaz refused to join in the revolt. He was too fearful of the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser. It's, to put it in our terms, it's like Queensland and Victoria ganging up against New South Wales to invite us to join in a revolt against America. I mean, it really is ridiculous. But because Ahaz refused to join in their madness, resident Pika were going to come and fight with Ahaz and establish a, a puppet king in Judah who would do what they wanted, revolt against Assyria. So poor King Ahaz was in a terrible bind. If he gave in to Rezin and Pekah, well, then he would have to fight the greatest empire in the world. If, on the other hand, he didn't give in to the local bullies, well, then only Assyria could protect him from them. And he would have to appeal for Assyrian help. And once you appeal for Assyrian help, then you'll become a vassal state of Assyria. So he was caught between the devil and the bleak blue sea and between a rock and a hard place, as we would say. What's the action? What should he do? So the prophet Isaiah came to him and said, there's a way forward for this. Trust the Lord. That's the way forward. Now, this seemed ridiculous. Uh, There was wisdom in backing Israel and Syria against Assyria. And there was wisdom in backing Assyria against Israel and and Aram. But they didn't see much wisdom in backing nobody. Well, nobody except the Lord. So Isaiah came to him a second time and said to him, there's an offer from God. And this is the passage that lies behind Matthew 1 and Christmas. So turn with me in your Bibles, page 690. 690. So I've given you enough of the background story as to what happens when Isaiah turns up, page 690 in our Bibles here, and it's Isaiah 7 and verse 10. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I'll not ask, and I'll not put the Lord to the test. And he, that's Isaiah, said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, 
The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. The king of Assyria. That's what God's going to bring. He's going to bring the king of Assyria. He will destroy Aram. He will destroy Israel. And he will destroy your country as well. Now that's the background to the birth of Jesus. It's not what most people know about Santa Claus is there, there, no reindeers, you, you don't have, it's not a winter scene. I mean, almost everything you know about Christmas is not Isaiah 7. And yet, Matthew says it's all about Isaiah 7. So, what's this background to the birth of Jesus? That is, Jesus the Christ, the word Christ means Messiah, the long-awaited king of God's people, waited from way back before the day of Ahaz. Now we noted last week that Matthew, back to Matthew's Gospel, page 1000, no, page 973, we noted that Matthew started off his Gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, as the book of the Genesis, or genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. If we're to understand Jesus, we must understand his Genesis, and that can be summarised as the son of David, the son of Abraham, for God had promised a son to both these men, and when this son came, he was going to rule the world. But the son of David was a failure, leading to the Babylonian deportation. So we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Uh, last week we graphed it like this. From Abraham, the history of Israel was all on the rise up to David, fulfilling the promises given to Abraham. And the promises were reinforced to David, even extended but from there it went downhill. Now, down to the Babylonian captivity. Now, Ahaz was a key part of the downturn to Babylon because Ahaz ignored Isaiah's advice in chapter 7 of Isaiah and turned to the Assyrians for protection, to Tiglath-Pileser to protect him from Israel and from Aram. And in the process, he adopted some of the Assyrian religion and introduced it into the very temple of God in Jerusalem. And he paid the king of Assyria taxes and he failed to be the son of David who would rule over the nations of the world. His failure was part of the continuous failure of David's sons, but his decisions seriously weakened the economy and the sovereignty of Judah. From that time on, it was no longer a free and independent nation. For he opened the door for the Assyrian conquest that came a few years later under Sennacherib, which nearly destroyed Jerusalem. It destroyed all of Judah. Only Jerusalem was saved when Sennacherib came and bottled up King Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, in 705 BC. 
But all of David's sons failed, and they were finally carted off into, into captivity in Babylon. And even when they returned from Babylon, they were never again free from foreign domination, be it the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, not from the time of Ahaz to the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was Jerusalem free as a city. So Matthew 1.17 talks of the genesis of Jesus as coming from Abraham to David through the failure of Ahaz to the Babylonian captivity and the pathetic aftermath of the Babylonian captivity till the time of Jesus. But in the end of Matthew chapter 1, we're reminded of the failure of Ahaz by the quote in verse 23 and the reference to Jesus being born of a virgin, for that's what Isaiah prophesied, and being called Emmanuel, for that's what Isaiah prophesied. And his birth involves several solutions to crises. The first solution was Joseph's solution to the crisis of finding that his betrothed was pregnant to somebody else. Her pregnancy implied the sin was adultery, for betrothal actually involved and was considered marriage in Israel. That's why you see the very strange word occur in a Christmas reading in verse 19. He resolved to divorce her quietly. In the midst of what we see as a wonderful, silent night, beautiful pictures, there's this awful word divorce right in the middle of it because things were wrong. She claimed to be innocent, even though she was pregnant. Adultery could lead to stoning. However, Joseph was a just man and was unwilling to put her to shame, as it says in chapter 1, verse 19, and he decided not to make a public case of her, but following the law of Numbers 5, to divorce her privately and quietly. But as we know, that was not the angel's solution. For the angel who appeared to Joseph in a dream, dream knew the real situation. And so the angel reassured Joseph that he had no reason to be alarmed because the real paternity of the baby was of God. For the baby was from the Holy Spirit and the child was truly special. And his mother had done nothing wrong. Indeed, she was still a virgin. And so we read over in verses 24 and 25, when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The baby was born without Joseph ever having had sex with his wife, Mary. Now that's not to say that Mary and Joseph didn't have normal sexual relationships as husband and wife afterwards. Indeed, verse 25 implies that the abstinence was only until Jesus was born. But he knew her not, verse 25, until she had given birth to a son. And then, by implication, they had normal sexual relations. That is, Mary is not a perpetual virgin. She was a virgin at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the angel told him to call his name Jesus, so Joseph obeyed. Actually, being Jewish and Hebrew, his name was Joshua, not Jesus, which is one of those funny things, isn't it? It's very hard to actually imagine that Jesus wasn't Jesus, but it's very unlikely. Jesus is the Greek version of the Jewish name Joshua, so it is more likely he was known as Yeshua. 
which is the Hebrew name meaning Yahweh saves. And so, as the angel said in verse 21, you'll see, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. For this Jesus did then, as he even does now, save his people from their sin. The angel was actually introducing to us God's solution. But God's solution was not the solution to the family and marriage and crisis that Joseph was having. It was a much bigger and greater crisis. It was the crisis of Israel. It was the crisis of humanity. For Jesus was the solution to the crisis of the house of David and the descendants of Abraham. Ahaz, caught between these local rebels and the great Assyrian kingdom, had chosen the wrong way to go. Even though Isaiah offered the right way to go, trust the Lord, it seemed to Ahaz impractical advice, and so he sided with Assyria, assuring him of his loyalty and asking him to defend Judah. Ahaz sold his soul and his nation, God's nation, to the forces of world domination, to the pagan king of Assyria. But God did not leave Ahaz without the warning and the advice of the prophet Isaiah. The prophet told Ahaz of Emmanuel, the sign of God, as we read in chapter 7. But Ahaz is a false piety, he refused this sign. For he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do, and so he wouldn't ask for a sign because they didn't have to do what he was told to do. So he went for this piety of saying, oh, no, I wouldn't ask for a sign and put God to the test. And so he was given a sign, a strange sign, a baby, Emmanuel. Strange because it was very hard to see it. I mean, most signs, you want them out there where people can see. But this sign... Well, a baby's going to be born to a virgin, an unnamed virgin, and except for the name Emmanuel, an unnamed baby. Who would know if such a thing has happened? Strange because it's caught up in this name, God with us. That is the sign of the judgment of God that's going to come upon you. See, when you and I hear God with us, we think, won't that be fantastic? God's on our side. But Isaiah 7 is, God is with you, and that's why the Assyrians are going to destroy you. I mean, it's all very well for God to come with us if we're on God's side, but what will it mean to have God with us if we're the enemies of God? I'd actually rather he stayed away than come with us. Emmanuel, God with us. It's strange because, you see, you can't really be sure whether it's a, a, a sign of judgment or a sign of salvation. What is it, what is it said that the king Ahaz fears, resident Pekah, will be destroyed before the boy is old enough to know right from wrong? So in the next couple of years, before this child has grown up at all, your enemies will be destroyed. But the boy won't eat well. He's going to eat curds and honey for the land is coming under the judgment and destruction and there are no crops because the way of the judgment that's going to fall upon Aram and fall upon Israel is the king of Assyria 
and he's going to leave you nothing to eat. Yet the name of the child is Emmanuel, God with us. The name of the child is seeming to say the opposite. For it doesn't sound like God is with us to have the place destroyed by Assyria. And yet, and as we read on in Isaiah, it becomes apparent that Emmanuel is Messiah. For the two are linked together. In chapter 8 of Isaiah, the promised land is called Emmanuel's land. And speaking of the judgment of God, he speaks, it's going to be overwhelm your land, O Emmanuel. And all this prepares us for the great chapter, chapter 9, that speaks of the overwhelming judgment of God coming down from the north through Galilee, through Aram, through Galilee, until the dawning of the new day when the victory against all God's enemies will happen. And then comes a Christmas passage that you will recognise. It's Isaiah chapter 9, because chapter 7 is preparing us for it. Then we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts is with us. Now that bit we do read at Christmas, don't we? But of course when we read it at Christmas, most people read chapter 9 without any knowledge of chapter 8 or any knowledge of chapter 7. Or why suddenly this person should be coming who is going to do this. That is, in the midst of the great crisis facing the people of God, Judah, under the shadow of the mighty empire of Assyria, God is still with them, working his purposes out. God challenges the king to trust him, and the king fails completely. He goes to water, sells out to the Assyrians. But God does not desert Judah. He sends the sign of the judgment that is coming, destroying totally the destruction of Israel and Aram and destroying the wealth of Judah. But it's a sign of new birth as well. A sign of a child of the virgin whose name declares God is with us. The birth of a new life in the midst of death. The salvation of the world in the midst of the judgment. The Messiah comes who will not be like Ahaz. The Christ who will conquer like David only will be greater than David because he will be God with us. And so it all happened. Assyria came. Tiglath-Pileser destroyed Israel. 722, the ten northern tribes of Israel were destroyed, scattered across the world, never to be regathered again. Not lost in North America for the Mormons to find. That's just sheer total mythology. And not sent to Britain so the British Israelites could find them either. They were just scattered across the Assyrian Empire. And as tribes, they didn't exist anymore, though people could name their ancestry from this tribe or from that tribe. Israel was no more, those ten tribes. And Aram was destroyed as well. And he extracted terrible tribute from Judah 
for what he had done in protecting them, such that he ground Judah down to the, down to the earth and led for further revolts against Assyria and the terrible invasion in 705 BC. Over the next generation, they were totally reduced. Just the two tribes of Judah were now left and they were threatened under the succession of Sennacherib and the destruction of Jerusalem was all but certain until God rescued them under Hezekiah. But from that time onwards, the history of Judah was just the slong, slow, downward spiral to Babylon and into the first century AD. This is the genesis of the birth of Jesus Christ. He was the one, born of a virgin, a young girl of no great significance or importance, born under the judgment of God with the Roman emperor an empire now occupying Jerusalem and Judah and insisting that he be sent back to Bethlehem to be born, not realising what he's doing, of course, in doing it. He, the Roman emperor didn't even know that there was such a person or that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. Why, even King Herod didn't know that, and he was part Jewish. No, no, but sent him back to fulfil the Old Testament scriptures that out of Bethlehem will come the son from the tribe of Judah, There was this little boy born, an obscure baby boy, born to a throne that didn't exist, born to a dynasty that didn't rule over anybody anymore, born to be king over a kingdom that no longer existed, born to be the saviour of his people, the Joshua, the Jesus, born as a sign that still God is with us, even in the judgment especially in the judgment, even when the forces of evil seem paramount and when the rulers are selling out, do not fear, God is with us. For in the next new birth comes the Messiah. Can come the recommencement of the kingdom of God, the salvation of the people of God. Out of the death of this nation comes the rebirth of a new nation, Out of the stump of David's family tree shoots forth a sprout that will give a tree far greater than David or his father ever imagined. And so here are the lessons of Christmas that come from Matthew 1. Salvation comes through judgment. He saves people from more than the Assyrians and the Romans, of course. He saves people from their sin. And therefore, it's not just Israel and Judah, it's universal. But it happens through judgment. And so we're having prepared for us what is going to happen 20 chapters later in Matthew's Gospel when this Christ hangs on the cross under the full weight of the judgment of God. Never a man looked less like a Christ than at that moment unless you understood that Emmanuel comes as the sign of the judgment by which God saves. And the cross is the judgment of God by which he saves. And Jesus, Christmas, it's all about the judgment of God that brings salvation from our sins. And also we can learn from this of God. 
his continuing sovereign control. He faithfully fulfills his purposes. He promised nearly 2,000 years before the event to Abraham that he'd have a son. He promised nearly 1,000 BC to David that his son would reign forever. He promised 730 or whatever it might have been, 720 BC to, to Ahaz that there will be a virgin with this name Emmanuel. He promised that, and he fulfills his promise. For us, 70 years, 80 if we're strong, is a long time. But the promises of God go over centuries. And so in our lifetime, we say, well, where is the coming of his promise? Where is the coming of his promise? It will come because God sovereignly is in control of all the affairs of mankind and he faithfully fulfills his promises. And doesn't matter how dark the hour may come, and it was very dark under the Assyrian Empire, when all the nations around about you are being destroyed, even Egypt, the mighty alternative power, is wiped out. And you are just left sitting in your little city with all your villages around in flames and you are bottled up by the king. It looked very, very dark. And yet, God rescued and God keeps rescuing. Doesn't matter how bleak it gets, my friends, God is sovereign in saving us. And fourthly, thirdly rather, salvation and God. The other lesson I draw to your attention is unlike Ahaz, we must trust that salvation will come from God. It might come in an unlikely fashion and an unusual fashion, but it will come. It has come to us through a child who was conceived out of wedlock, born under the shadow of divorce, entered into the wicked world of sin and judgment, dying for our sins in order to rise up and rule as our judge and saviour, and not only ours, but over the world. So that 2,000 years later, this month, on the 25th day of this month, most of the world will stand still because of Emmanuel, God's saviour, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Christ, who is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, for he saves his people from their sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for everything you give to us, but above all, for the gift of your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We thank you that you were faithful to your promises and that he was faithful to you even unto death. We thank you that you are in control of all things and that even in the darkest hour we can know that you are the Saviour and that it is through the judgments that come upon this world that you bring about your salvation. And so we thank you and praise you, Father, for this year of being able to study your word together. Pray for our friends and family as we come to Christmas time and think once more about the birth of your son, that many more people may come to see in him your great work of salvation and come to acknowledge him to be who he really is, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords the saviour of the world 
and we pray for them as we pray for ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen.